Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on The Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Jesse Eubanks to talk with him about the Enneagram and his most recent book, How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram. And we've talked about the Enneagram several times here on the podcast, and I will link to several episodes of which we've uh, talked about before. And so if you're interested in learning more about it, you know, you can always go back to those podcasts. You could pick up Jesse's book as well and do that. Now, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things here that we do and some of the things that uh, just inform pretty much everything here on the podcast. The first thing is this, is that we want to be a safe place to have difficult conversations, maybe conversations that you don't feel like you can have with anybody else, or maybe you feel like you could have with very few people. Because sometimes topics could just be very polarizing, and it's difficult to have a productive and healthy dialogue around different things. We want to be the place to where we can talk about those things no matter what they are. We believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them 100%. And that even if we only agree with them 11%, we could still learn from them as well. We believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, whether that's something serious or something trivial, or whether that's something like this uh, personality framework, like the Enneagram. And we do this, we learn, I learn, because someone did that for me. Someone passed on what they learned to me and decided to invest in me. And that's what we want to do for the, for the next generation that's coming up. For the people who are maybe depending on us as well. And if you enjoy this episode, or if you're down with everything that I said before, you know, one of the best things you could do is subscribe to my newsletter where I give you all of the different things that I am currently learning from, from books to movies to podcasts to TV songs, all of that stuff, because I just want to share the things that I'm learning about. And you can pick that up or subscribe to that in the show notes. Now, as I mentioned today, we're talking about the Enneagram and I'm talking with Jesse Eubanks about it. So let me tell you a little bit about Jesse and then we can jump into the conversation. Jesse Eubanks is a certified Enneagram coach and host of the Enneacast, a podcast exploring personality and relationships through the lens of the Enneagram. Jesse is also the founder and executive director of Love Thy Neighborhood, an urban missions agency putting young adults on the front lines of nonprofit work. Relevant Magazine named him one of the top 50 Christian artists and activists making an impact on the culture in America, and he and his wife, Lindsay, live in Louisville, Kentucky with their two children. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Jesse, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Caleb. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, and you've written this book, which is about the Enneagram, called How We Relate. And anytime that I'm, you know, talking with someone who has created a work of art or in, your, or in your case, I mean, you have created a work of art in this book, but also you've just been learning about the Enneagram for a really long time and have kind of made it into somewhat of a, of a profession too. And so I just love hearing how people got started whenever they 
discover something that they're really passionate about or even like the origin of a book. And so I would just love to just start our conversation there. Yeah. Um, you know, it, a lot of people, I don't know. I'm trying to think about where to even start the story. I guess the best place to start would be this. Um, it came from a place um, of dysfunction. You know, um, if you ever been around somebody that just like doesn't have much self-awareness, you know, like, like, yeah. you, like they don't, they don't understand how they're coming across. They don't understand the way in which they are, um, you know, hurting other people, the, the ways in which they're showing up in the room. That's like detrimental. And, and, and honestly, that's where my story started. I was that person. Um, and, uh, so my journey to the Enneagram was that I was, um, you know, they're, they're kind of two uh, different scenes in my life that came together. One of them I talk about in the book. So l let me talk about the other one here, mm -hmm. which is that I was on staff at a, a homeless shelter and we were spending all our days telling people all about the love of Jesus and how much the Lord loves you. And that if, you know, you would follow him, that you'd be brought into this loving family of God. And behind the scenes, like we were really dysfunctional. Like we, as a staff, we didn't trust each other. We were fighting all the time. We were bickering. We undermined each other. Uh, um, and the truth is that, uh, you know, we were sort of like, um, airplane salesmen that hoped that no one asked us if we actually knew how to fly It's like, we are spending all our time talking about the love of God, but we actually didn't know how to love each other very well. And it was out of that experience that, um, some guys came in to help us as a staff begin to work through these issues. And they brought this tool along with them, this weird sounding thing called the Enneagram. And, um, and as I read about two different types in particular, it was like someone was crawling around in my psyche. Uh, and, uh, I went home, um, really feeling like, um, you know, the experience of an epiphany, the, the experience of like, oh my gosh, how could I have been blind to all these things going on inside of me? And, um, and so, yeah, so the Enneagram, uh, came, uh, into my life at a moment in which, um, my lack of self-awareness was causing real damage to the relationships in my life. Mm. What were the two types and how did you kind of land on that? This is, this is your type. Yeah. You know, it's a journey, you know, some people read their type and they instantly are like, that is absolutely a hundred percent me. And, um, you know, the first one that I kind of, uh, really resonated with was type three. And then the other one was type four. And, um, uh, and for, you know, a decade, I identified as a as a type four. The, that's the originalist, uh, deep feelers, creative types, uh, this sort of uh, sense of black sheep. Uh, we're always on the outside. And a lot of that is very true. Um, but I always said, well, I've got a raging three ring uh, wing. Um, and uh, as time went on uh, and I began to write this book and began to do some therapy um, and began to really talk with some friends, the truth is that I realized, well, now. No, I'm actually, I'm driven more by the three stuff that really just has a high, high four. And so, um, so the three is the achiever and, um, and really that comes down to, um, a difference of core desire. Um, the core desire of the four is to be authentic. Um, and the core desire of the three is to be valuable. And the truth is that I feel a much greater temptation to do the dog and pony show uh, in order to get people to love me and admire me and pay attention to me. And, uh, heck I'll even write a book about it, uh, in order yeah. to, uh, to get. And so, so there was, um, there was a sense in which, uh, I had to really wrestle with the reality. Um, my need to 
to be valuable to people drives me a lot more than I need to be authentic. And so, uh, mm. so that's, that's kind of my journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I've, I, for one reason or another, it just seems like I've been talking like with a ton of people just in my own life about the Enneagram recently. And they've been asking me about like, Oh, is this person an eight? Is this person a six? And it's just what you hit so much about the core desire is the key thing because of so yeah. many of them, we do the same thing, but we do it for very different reasons. Yeah. You know, to help with that, there's a couple of analogies. So for folks that are listening that are not super familiar with the desires of the nine types, let me let me just say them very succinctly. Yeah. Um, type one has a desire uh, to be good and to have integrity. Type two has a, a core desire to be wanted. Three is a desire to be valuable. Four is a desire uh, to be authentic. Five is a desire to be competent. Six is a desire to be secure. Seven is a desire to be happy. Eight is is a desire to protect themselves and the people they love. And nine is a desire to be at peace. Um, and the reason that those nine desires are important are uh, a couple of different reasons. So here, here are the analogies. Number one, think of it like um, uh, a pack of sled dogs. Like all nine of those desires, each one is a sled dog. One of those will come to the forefront in your life and will lead the other eight desires. Um, and so uh, so one of those is a chief desire and um, and we need to pay attention to it. Another way of thinking of it is this. Think of it almost like um, whatever your core desire is, is almost like the core of a planet. It's like all of gravity sort of revolves around that desire. And the reason that that's important, we just finished up a, a series on our podcast, The Enneacast, on um, how our personality influences our faith. And one of the things that we talked about is that all of us create a slanted rule of life. So, for example, um, you know, again, let me let me hit the three stuff because that's that's yeah. me. Is um, um, we tend to uh, to create a slanted rule of life in which our relationship with God tends to revolve around building and productivity and getting things done. Um, and uh, and that can be good that that's an element, but when it becomes too strong, that's where you end up with, you know, kind of the, the Carl Lentz, Hillsong, New York City kind of stuff going on where it's all image and we're willing to, you know, give a lot of preferential treatment to people that we think are going to make us more popular. Uh, and so, um, so all that to say is that when we think of the Enneagram, think of it as there's these nine desires and one of them is very important to you and you organize your personality and your life around that desire. And if you don't pay attention to it, um, it has the potential to do real destruction to your relationship with God and other people. Yeah. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about that we were talking about before uh, recording, and, and it seems like this is at least in my sphere, this has also come up a little bit more recently of like pushback against the Enneagram of like, you know, how can that be from God? You know, isn't that, isn't that demonic? You know, look at the origins of it, all, all of that stuff. Um, but talk to me about your perspective, just kind of, kind of on that and kind of how you see things differently from that. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really sympathetic to people that are um, weary of the Enneagram. I mean, it looks like a pentagram. Uh, uh, you know, you start looking at the the folks that were some of the main architects of it throughout the 1900s. And uh, in no way 
were they Christians? You know, those those early architects were um, were involved in sort of a cultic New Age uh, self made religion, and um, so I I understand why people initially would just go, why in the world do we need that? Like, isn't the Bible sufficient? Um, why do we need to mess around with this other stuff? What a lot of people fail to realize is. Um, is that uh, those, those there's a lot of rumors. First, there's a lot of rumors that go around. So like there's the bizarre rumor that one of the guys, you know, would have visions of an archangel named Metatron and this entity called the Green Q Tub and that uh, and that those entities gave him the Enneagram. Uh, th those were rumors. He's gone on record, you know, before he died. He went on record as saying, None of those things ever happened. Those were rumors to discredit my work. And so, so I always like to remind Christians, we don't want to participate in rumors. Um, the Bible calls us to speak the truth. And so when we hear that rumor, he himself has said that did not happen. And when we continue to spread it, we are being gossips. And so, uh, so we need to be very careful. The second one would be, um, um, of course, there's the famous YouTube clip of, um, you know, of Naranjo talking about automatic writing. And that, of course, you know, a few weeks ago, Jackie O'Perry uh, put that up on her Instagram. And um, and you look at it on its face and you go, automatic writing? Like, is that, was he possessed? Like, what was going on? Um, and he's, uh, his students have gone on record and said, you know, the Christian understanding of automatic writing is not at all what he meant. What he meant was the, the guy went to Harvard and Berkeley and studied personality theory. So what he meant is that he sat down and when he began to work on this concept of the Enneagram, it flowed very easily because he had studied so much. Um, and so so there's sort of the the theological concerns. Um, and then on the other side, um, there's the concerns about like, is it legit psychology um, or is it just sort of hocus pocus? Is it horoscope kind of stuff? Um, and the truth is, you know, again, you know, you've got really, really respected psychologists uh, that both uh, contributed to the building of the Enneagram, but also, um, you know, the Enneagram pulls content from, you know, Jung and Freud and, you know, all, a variety of different um, personality theorists. So all that to say is um, when I began uh, to work on the Enneagram, a, a buddy of mine is um, the uh, the head of the psychology department uh, at a very large, well-respected university. He was very reluctant to sign off. He sort of was like, your Enneagram's like cute pop psychology. It's like a BuzzFeed quiz. And, uh, but he actually went away for a year. And as part of his research, this is a guy that this is what he does for a living. He researches things. Are they valid? Can they be measured? Um, and he came back and he was one of the guys that really pushed me to write this book. He said that there's the, the research behind the Enneagram is very sound. Yeah. I, anytime that I talk with somebody who has just learned a ton about the Enneagram. I always love asking, you know, what's something about the Enneagram that you wish was talked about more or had a greater appreciation from people? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I'm really pleased that, you know, in the early Enneagram sort of teaching, the stuff that was kind of coming out in the late 90s through the early 2000s, um, and then recently it's happened again, there was a lot of emphasis on this notion that we are all nine types. You know, types is um, it is the word that we use. It is helpful. But I, I sort of wish that we refer to them as qualities, um, because I think that these are all nine um, ingredients of, of who we are as people. And we have all nine of these things to greater or lesser degrees. So I, I wish that there was more emphasis on that. 
on the notion that we we have all nine of these qualities and that we can develop them. I also wish that there was more talk about what do we do with our shame and our fear and our guilt and anger. Um, and so a lot of Enneagram teaching says, oh, these are the primary struggles of different people, but there's not a lot of talk around the antidote. And I think that that's an opportunity for us as Christians to go, well, let's talk about the antidote. You know, there is an antidote. Uh, and yeah. how does Jesus Jesus resolve these things for us? Mm, yeah. I think one of my favorite parts of the book as I was going through it is you talk about um, how each type nurtures the false self. And then you talk about like how whatever we're pursuing can become an idol and we have to sacrifice things for the idol. And that just really was like, it just gave me a ton of more perspective on just the Enneagram and the cost of it. Like what not being healthy and pursuing Jesus and wholeness can lead us to. And so I would just love to just kind of maybe start with the eight and then we can kind of like work our way down through each number of, um, of what they're going after, what they settle for, and then what they sacrifice for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, let me, let me flip, uh, to the chapter because, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just old enough now that, uh, I'm not going to be able to remember everything. And I've got these nice doodles that, that help anchor me. I, yeah, so the I idea will, is... I, I was going to say, I love the artwork in it, too. Oh, like, just oh, all good. spread throughout all the different chapters and cool. It's oh, really cool. good, good, good. Yeah, I'm I'm a real visual person. And so uh, years ago, my wife suggested, you know, we should do visuals when we teach the Enneagram. And so she doodled things, like, on a piece of paper. And yeah. years later, this is what you're looking at. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, so the basic idea is this. There are nine... Um, core desires, as I said a moment ago. And if you think about all nine of those, none of them are bad. Those are actually all really good God-given desires. Uh, I believe that Jesus had those desires. We want we pursue those things. But the trick is that uh, all of us believe we can't really get those things. And so we end up settling. And the thing we settle for becomes an idol. And then we got to make sacrifices to that idol. Mm-hmm. And um, so for the eight, um, the eight wants to protect themselves, but they settle for control and power. Um, and uh, because the idea is, if, well, if I'm in control, then uh, then I'm going to be protected. But the thing is this, when uh, the, the idol of control and power requires them to sacrifice closeness with people, uh, giving and receiving forgiveness, because you've got to admit fault, um, and then having and sharing fragile feelings. Uh, uh, fragile feelings are, there's no place for that if I'm supposed to be a powerful person. Um, and so uh, so you can see where the eight has to give up really important fundamental things um, to their idol. Mm-hmm. Can you give uh, so just an th- example of what like a, a couple of fragile feelings might be? Yeah, I mean, imagine like, you know, I remember years ago that I knew this this guy that um, had to take a job in which he was away from his wife and his three children for months. Not not like a few days, but he'd be away from them for months. And I remember sitting down with him and just going, man, how are you doing with that? Like, that's got to be hard on your marriage. And he was like, mm-hmm. we're fine and she's great and the kids love it. And it was all like very positive and completely not true. Um, mm-hmm. But but he um, he could not bring himself um, to be willing to acknowledge to himself, like, I am sad. I'm lonely. I've missed my wife. I miss my kids. It was all, it was all strength. Um, yeah. and so his need to protect himself 
you know, uh, exaggerated into this need for power. And then that power kept him from being able to be vulnerable with other people. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's talk a little bit about type nine. Uh, so we're in the body triad, by the way, if um, if you're listening and there are three triads. And so uh, body triad, these are these are folks that are deeply driven by their instincts and mm -hmm. uh, and what their sensations are in their body. Um, so the nine wants to be at peace. Um, I think that ultimately that's a longing for shalom, the, the, the true, um, internal and external, uh, reconciliation and harmony of all things. Um, but they end up settling for comfort. Um, and, uh, you know, another way of saying this is they settle for the path of least resistance. Um, and so it becomes this synthetic version of peace and they end up sacrificing, um, their own desires because they don't want to create conflict with others. So they always just defer to what other people want. Um, the belief that they can make a difference because I'm not that important. You're more important. Um, and then the, and this is, this is a really important one, the growth that comes from conflict. You know, if you think of every great story, characters change because of the hardship they go through, but the nine sacrifices that to their idol of comfort. Um, right. And so in a lot of ways, uh, nines can accidentally go years and years without changing much as people in ways that are pretty important for life. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so there's there's type nine. Um, so type ones, these folks, uh, they want to have integrity. They want to be the same person on the outside as they are on the inside. They want to be the same person in public as they are in private. Um, they do not believe they can really achieve that. So they settle for the idol of perfectionism and, uh, perfectionism is this idea that, um, they, their life is rattled by oughts and shoulds. We say they should all over themselves, uh, that they, it's just, I should be like this and you should be like this. Um, and they sacrifice their own desires and wants. Uh, we see this show up in Christendom where people will say, it doesn't matter what I want. It's only what Jesus wants. Mm -hmm. And I always want to say, you are not a Buddhist. Jesus did not come and eradicate you into a single consciousness. You are a self and he wants you to bring your desires to him. But mm. in, in the pursuit of perfectionism, they feel like their desires are irrelevant. Um, yeah. They sacrifice fun, enjoyment, and spontaneity because if they loosen up too much, they're afraid that they're going to mess things up, forget something, embarrass uh, or sin. Um, and then receiving and giving grace. Um, grace is too slow of a change agent. They believe that anger will get everybody there faster. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, so that's that's the one. So that's the body triad. Yeah. Um, I, I did want to ask you something real quick about yeah. ones that I would be curious to get your take on. I, I, have, I have several ones in my life. And one of the things that I, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but whenever ones are healthiest, they try, they go to sevens correct? Like the enthusiast. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So one of the theories that I've just been, you know, thinking about or pontificating about is that I have a few ones in my life who really try to be funny sometimes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it does not go over well. And like, mm -hmm. I'm trying to like, give it, like, it's like, a, but... it's a little, like it's a little biting. Yes. Is it's that, a little biting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I'm trying, to, my theory is that they're trying to, they're not doing it like biting. At least I don't think. I think they're trying to be funny or they're trying to join into it. Does that yeah. sound right or any thoughts on that? No, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, the the sort of classic image of the one is that they're smiling, but their eyes are twitching with nerve because <laughs> there's sort of this sense of um, I'm really angry and I really 
see all the flaws in this situation, but I'm trying so hard to be good and yeah. nice and kind. And I think in the same way, um, you know, uh, some ones are just on a journey and, and, and I agree with you. I don't think most ones when they, um, first off, I think there's, I, I know a lot of ones that like make me double over in laughter and they're very yeah. sweet and kind, but I do think that they're, you know, the ones that are, they try to make a joke and it comes across a little more biting than they intended for. I, I think that's just, um, that's them on the journey they're, It's their sort of internal critic and their attempt to reach for a better place sort of coming out in an awkward way. It's like a muscle yeah. they've never flexed. So they're yeah. learning how to do it. Um, so yeah, so if a one makes a joke and they're like kind of a jerk in the process, they, they probably don't mean to be. And so be, yeah. be kind to them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, heart triad next, right? Okay. So yeah, so heart triad. So um, so these are types two, three, and four, deep feelers. They interpret the world through their emotions. Um, type twos, um, type twos want to be wanted they want to be cherished they want to be loved unconditionally they don't believe they can really get that just by existing so they mm -hmm. settle for being indispensable um they uh they get involved in people's lives um in enmeshed ways um where they uh they get over involved um and and you know classically it's it's codependency they need to be needed um and what what they end up doing um, is that they have to sacrifice to others asking for what they need. And in fact, um, the more unhealthy a two is, having needs at all makes them feel deeply ashamed. Um, that is actually a trigger. You ask, a, you ask an unhealthy two, what do you want? And they feel shame that you're even asking because uh, having needs feels selfish and that uh, they believe, no, 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 I have to be indispensable or I won't be loved. Um, they have to... Um, sacrifice receiving uh, without uh, paying back. So uh, so they, you give them a gift, they feel like they got to give it back to you. Um, and then finally, uh, needing God's grace. Now they need God's grace, but it's hard for them to acknowledge that they need God's grace because that means that they have a need. And, uh, and, and having a need, even having a need from God feels uh, burdensome. Uh, I don't want to burden other people. Um, and so, uh, so there's, yeah, there's type two. Yeah. Can we dig into a little bit more of the, like giving up the receiving piece of it? Cause I can just imagine if someone is a two and listening, they're like, I'm not missing anything out by, yeah. <laughs> I'm not missing up receiving anything. I don't even really care about receiving. Can you yeah, just um, like tease that out a little bit about what the cost of that looks yeah. like, or even just an example of what that looks like? Yeah, there's, you know, I remember years ago, somebody telling me um, that that in life, learning to love other people is very hard. And that's why Jesus calls us to it. It's why the Lord calls us to it. And we're all working towards it. But then they said, but often learning to be loved can be even harder. And I think that that's the, the journey that the two especially has to go on. Um, if, if, all of us, and it, it's not just a two thing. Any of us that feel like I got to do X, Y, and Z in order to be loved, it, at some level, we're saying love is transactional. Love is mm -hmm. uh, a deposit. I go and I work and I do these things, and therefore I receive love in return. Um, you know, twos, if you're listening, you are worthy of being loved. The Lord has decided that for you. You don't get to say, no, God, I don't need love. He knows that you have need. He built you to have needs. Um he um he made you finite. Uh 
Um, when somebody says, I don't have any needs, there is a prideful arrogance behind that, which is to say, um, I have all the resources that I need for myself and I have all the resources that you need as well. And that's just not reality. Um, and uh, and it's really important that we as Christians are dedicated to, to living in reality. The um, the consequence for the two that refuses to see their own needs is that they will they will get to a place where they're very bitter and angry in life. Um, mm. They're going off on people. Um, they're overextended. They're not sleeping. Their health goes, you know, horrible. Um, and their self-awareness gets worse and worse as the years go on. So we really, we've got to commit to, um, to understanding I will always have certain needs because I'm a human being and God made me that way on purpose. It's not a flaw. It's, it's in God's design. Yeah. Uh, okay. So type three, type three. So these folks, um, they, um, they want to be valuable. Um, so they want to contribute to their communities. They want to bring helpful things into the world. They want to help other people achieve things, but they settle for the idol of being successful. Um, and in many ways it could be said that, um, you know, some people, when they think of success, they think of like, just like, um, like Instagram influencers and millionaires mm-hmm. and those sorts of things that more so it could be said that for the three it's, we get things done and we achieve things. And at the end of the day, what really fuels that is we, we want to be admired. Admiration is really, uh, it's a tricky one. Admiration is a tricky one because it, um, it it taps that sense of of you know the same vein that like when we sense that the, the Lord delights in us just as we are, um, or our wife does, or our kids do. They just love us just as we are. Well, when someone admires us, it feels like it's tapping the same thing, but it's a synthetic version. So it gets real tricky for us to kind of figure out the difference. Um, yeah. And uh, so we have to sacrifice authenticity with ourselves and others because who really cares what's authentic? I want to be admired and I'll do what I got to do to be admired. Um, yeah. And uh, family and intimate relationships because um, they're complicated, they're messy, they're emotional. People have big emotional needs and we are like, stop being so emotional, go get yeah. things done. Um <laughs> And then, um, and then being loved uh, just for who we are. Um, we just, we believe the lie. We're loved because of what we do and because of how people see us and not because of the truth of who we are. And so, um, so it's a real, um, you know, it ain't good. Uh, we, yeah. we, are, we are in need of the gospel for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I, I relate so much to that and especially the admiration part. And I think one of the, one of the things that I've just gained a greater appreciation of of being the th- being a three as well is that man that admiration I'll tell you what it's really tricky whenever it comes down to like just it's certain people it's not everybody and like that's right yeah sometimes, sometimes yes. it's like don't really care what anybody else thinks but yes. these four people if they don't yeah. admire me then it's like yeah. nobody else matters yes yes yeah yeah I mean you know I. All throughout my life, I mean, starting in my teenage years, um, I have had the pleasure and probably at some level have orchestrated the opportunities to work with many of my heroes throughout life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I got to tell you, it's a pretty crushing thing when you're like, I'm finally working with my hero. And then the hero goes, I'm not real into this. And they go on to the next <laughs> thing because the next person's more qualified or oh. better. And and But at the same time, there's also a sense of the Lord's grace in that. 
because um, because we believe the lie. If I'm associated with this person, then I'm important and I matter. Mm-hmm. And God goes, nope, let's take that person away so that I can remind you again, you are just as important to me now as you are if you knew all the biggest celebrities and influencers in the world. Um, yeah. And so, uh, so it's, yeah, so it's a journey, man. It's a journey. Yeah. Uh, type fours, uh, these folks uh, want to be their authentic self who's significant to others. So they do not want to be replicated or uh, they don't want to, you know, put something out there that is fake. They, they want to be true to who they are. And that is a good and healthy thing, but they don't believe that they can really quite do that in a way um, you know, that's going to achieve love for them. So they settle for the, uh, for the false idol of being different. Um, they become addicted to differentiation. So if you're around a four and it's a big group of people and everybody goes, I like pizza, I can guarantee that four ain't going to say that they like pizza. They're going to say, I don't like pizza, or they're going to change the subject to something else, um, even if they actually do love pizza. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the four just slides into a place of, I've got to be different if I'm replicated in any way, my identity will be lost. Um, so they sacrifice their own happiness uh, because they are constantly longing and pursuing uh, everything that is different and unique, uh, feeling accepted and understood. Uh, so if you've ever had the really pleasant experience of a four-hour conversation with a type four, and then you repeat back to them everything they've just said to you, and then they go, yeah, but you just don't get it. Uh, that's that's kind of the way of the four is that they become addicted to being uh, misunderstood. And then they also sacrifice everything common. So they may love eating at Chili's, uh, but they're not going to be able to talk about that. They're always going to want to go to the obscure back back uh, alley place that no one's ever heard of. They knew the band before they were popular. Now that they're popular, they don't like them anymore. So, uh, so the four just gives up this sense of God's common grace that's on us. You know, there are a lot of good things in the world. Um, and, uh, and the four sadly has to relinquish those to the, to their need to be different. So that is the heart triad. Uh, so let's make our way into the head triad. Uh, okay. So type fives. Um, so again, the, the head triad, these folks, uh, interpret the world primarily through their thoughts. Um, and they tend to try to repress their emotions. Um, and um, they can also sometimes really struggle with action uh, because they just kind of get a little lost in their head. So mm-hmm. um, these folks, uh, type five, these folks uh, want to be competent. That is a basic need in life, to be good and decent at things. I put my hands on something, I understand how to do it. I put my head to a problem, I understand how to resolve it. Um, so a basic and good desire, but they don't really believe that they can be competent. So they end up just sort of settling for this notion of I'm going to know everything. They give up the real world, um, experience of competency where we go out and we do, and we experience and we sort of make our way through relatively competently. And instead they retreat into their minds. If you think of Sherlock Holmes, the BBC version where, uh, Sherlock goes into his mind mind palace. palace. That's yeah. <laughs> that's your classic five move. They have um, the most complicated libraries in their mind of of any type, um, and uh, and they mistake, you know, they mistake skiing for watching YouTube videos about skiing, or they mistake, you know, um, you know, psychological dynamics in a relationship and what's going to make for a healthy relationship for reading books about it and not actually sort of doing the work. So, what do they sacrifice to their idol of knowing everything? 
uh, feeling known and loved. Um, they tend to become stingy and they withhold themselves from other people relationally. Um, they sacrifice intimate relationships because relationships are going to eat at their resources um, and uh, and they don't want to give that up. Um, and they sacrifice engaging life um, instead just uh, settling for knowledge um, alone. So that's, that's type five. Uh, type six, uh, these folks um, have a, a good desire uh, to, uh, to have security. Um, I often think of it uh, in this way. It's a longing for heaven. They want the permanence of heaven, the sense in which the castle walls are fortified. There are no threats coming. Everyone is taken care of. And now we can finally rest and enjoy life. Um, but they don't believe they can get that. So they settle for the false idol of safety. Everything becomes sort of about protocol and rules and boundaries, and they become like security systems that are always scanning for threats that can't turn off. Um, and so uh, I think of them like very tired mall cops. You know, it's like just mm -hmm. that sense of like they're just always on the hunt um, uh, when they're not very healthy. And so what do they sacrifice? They sacrifice feeling carefree and relaxed. Um, because if they relax, they're going to forget about something important. They sacrifice trusting God and other people. Um, is God really going to show up? Is God really, is God even real? Uh, are other people going to show up? Are they lying to me? Are they even aware of their own deep motives? So there's just skepticism. And then finally, they also uh, sacrifice trusting their own ideas and their own beliefs. They don't trust other people. They trust themselves even less. Um, and so there's a real sense that the, the six is always on the hunt for outside support um, that's going to make them feel more secure. Um, and they can often uh, sacrifice um, really believing that the, that the Lord is present with them and that other people are committed to them. Um, so that's that's type six. Mm -hmm. uh, so type seven, type seven. Uh, so what do they want? They want to be happy. I think that uh, I remember years ago, a buddy of mine said, um, the ultimate trajectory of the Christian life is toward joy. And I think that that's what the the seven is getting at. This idea of like we're all moving in this direction of bliss and joy and fulfillment, but um, as to where I think that the good longing is a joy of substance, the seven ends up um, settling for a joy of avoidance, and that comes in the form of pleasure, um, classically known as hedonism. Um, the the purpose of life is to experience pleasure. Um, mm -hmm. And they end up sacrificing feeling satisfied. So they love dreaming and scheming about what's coming. But as soon as it arrives, it's never fulfilling in the way they hope it'll be. So they go on to scheme and dream about the next thing. They sacrifice depth in relationships. Um, instead, preferring just to kind of be shallow and happy. You come to them with your sad stuff, your heavy stuff, your burdensome stuff. They're out. Uh, they don't want to feel all that. They don't want to deal with all that. Uh, and then they sacrifice discipline and focus. They just, there's a lot of monkey mind energy. They're just kind of all over the place. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's the seven. Um, and uh, um, they want to be happy, but they settle for pleasure. Hmm. Yeah. Did we you get know, them all? I think we got I think them all. We did. I think we did. I think we got them all. You know, I think the other thing that I would love to ask you about, and this will probably imagine going through these Enneagram types will probably take us pretty close um, to the end of our conversation. But I, w I would love to talk like one of the, again, I, there's lots of great Enneagram books, 
one of the things that I appreciate most about yours is what we just went through in it and the spiritual disciplines and how Jesus relates and either comforts or challenges us each in our yeah. type as well. Yeah. And so just as, you know, we're moving towards, I guess, probably the end of our conversation by the time that we're going through this, I would love to maybe just go through the Enneagram types one more time and either I'll let you choose either a way that Jesus comforts or challenges each type, whichever one comes to mind, and then maybe a helpful spiritual discipline that might help each type oh, as yeah. well. And again, sure. we can probably just start with the eight and then go, um, you know, through the body type, heart, and head then. Great. Yeah, that's great. So, um, okay, so let's start with uh, type eight. So type eight, these folks are known as the protector. That's that's their nickname. And in Jesus, what we actually find is that they encounter uh, the true protector. Um, and Jesus uh, comes to them and, um, and does a, a few different things. Um, in the book, I talk about this movement um, – towards trust like what is it what is required for us to deeply and truly trust somebody mm -hmm. and um i think like a really helpful analogy uh, that i always think of is alcoholics anonymous when somebody is um first trying to get sober um they go to a meeting and they're like i, I don't know how to do this i've never done this before i'm lost and you know an older you know more seasoned um you know alcoholic who's been in recovery a long time comes and says I've been where you are. So their first movement is empathy. I understand where you are. And then second, um, I uh, I got out of it in the following ways. Here's what I did. So it's empathy and then it's authority. And that's what leads to trust. So if we think about that, then we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what does it look like for uh, Jesus to earn our trust? And I think that he does the same thing. I think he empathizes with our deepest wound. Uh, the thing that drives us as people is we've got these horribly you know, deep, deep, painful wounds inside of us. Um, he affirms the ways in which God is showing up inside of us and the way in which we are displaying the Holy Spirit at work, but he also confronts us. He also looks at us and says, but here are the things that you are doing that are abusing these gifts I've given to you. And then ultimately he gives us the gospel. He gives us this good message and that leads into discipleship. So just as a framework, that that's kind of what we're going to talk through with these, yeah. with these types. So, um, so for type eight, um, um, how does he empathize with them? Like the eight, Jesus was attacked by unjust people and stripped of his freedom. So eights, when you feel like you're being attacked and it's not fair and everyone's coming after you and you got to put your dukes up, Jesus gets that sensation of, of, uh, of unjust attacks. Um, and how does he affirm you? Well, like you, Jesus confronted evil and he pursued justice. We see that constantly in the scriptures. He's confronting uh, injustice everywhere that he goes. Um, however, um, how does he confront you? Um, Jesus confronts the eight by controlling his strength. Eights have a hard time. A lot of, a lot of times you guys kind of open up and you let loose on people and then you blame them when they're all laying dead on the side of the road. Um, Jesus... Uh, Jesus knew how to control his strength. He had the ability to call down legions of angels. He chose not to. He chose mercy. And uh, so how in the world are you going to do this? Jesus gives you this this good news. Uh, he will not betray you. He will not betray you. And so you can trust him. And by trusting him, that means you walk in his ways. And uh, you don't do things in your strength. You do things in his strength. Um, so, um, so a couple of just very brief, uh, discipleship tips for eights. Um, number one, adopt a cause. 
Um, so, you know, you got to find something to channel that energy into. There, There is injustice in the world. Things do need to be fought. Find something to go and fight for. Find a people to protect. But second, you also need accountability. Find people in your life that you meet with on a regular, consistent basis uh, that you uh, are able to do the work of confessing and that you let them confront you. And one small tip for the eight, you got to dial your energy down in those settings. Um, you you naturally have a tendency to want to control and naturally have a tendency to want to um, to be seen as strong. That's not what goes on in an accountability conversation. Uh, you need to diminish your energy and let other people speak in. So there's the eight. Yeah. Uh, okay, type nine. So these folks are known as the peacemaker. In Jesus, they encounter the true peacemaker. And like the nine, Jesus was unheard by the passive and overpowered by the powerful. So nines classically feel like doesn't matter what I do, they're going to do their agenda, and and uh, I can't change any outcomes. We see constantly Jesus attempting to speak and people just over uh, overriding him. So Jesus gets that wound. Um, like the nine, Jesus accepted people. So in the same way you guys are so gifted at inviting people in and loving them, Jesus Jesus was the same. But how does he confront you? Um, he confronts you by exerting his energy on what mattered most. So Jesus could have set up shop in a small town and uh, had a little rabbi school and uh, made a good living in a quiet life. He chose what mattered most, and that, that meant doing some hard things. Um, and uh, how, does, how in the world are you going to do this? He gives you this message, your presence matters. Your presence matters. You matter to him. You matter to other people. You make a difference in the world. So how can you follow him as a disciple? Uh, two things. Number one, time in nature. So uh, so you want to get outside uh, and, and enjoy nature because you guys are just so gifted at seeing the interconnectedness of the world. Um, so enjoy time in nature. And the second thing is prayer. And in particular, nines, you guys are creatures of habit. So uh, get out there and, uh, and make sure that uh, you're building a, a routine that has prayer as part of it. So, uh, you know, maybe morning, noon, and evening, you just have a short timer on your phone and you dedicate yourself to focused time of prayer. So uh, there's there's the nine. Uh, number one, uh, type one. Uh, so these folks are known as uh, the reformers. And um, so in Jesus, they encounter uh, they encounter the true reformer, the true reformer. How does he empathize with you? Um, well, like the one. Um, uh, uh, hold on. Unreal. I am just now seeing that uh, they left a, an, an illustration out of my book. And I'm just now noticing oh. it for the first time. Here it is, live on air. Um, so um, so let me say this. Um, how does he empathize uh, with you? Jesus uh, was criticized and the love that people gave him was conditional. So people's affections went up and down all the time um, according to uh, whether they thought uh, he was doing the right thing, the wrong thing, whether they liked it, whether they didn't like it. Um, and so when you're feeling like people give and take love according to my behavior, Jesus gets that. Um, like the one Jesus stewarded his life, I know you guys feel a real deep sense of what I do with the time that's been given to me. Jesus Jesus feels the same. Uh, but he also confronts you uh, because he's gracious with sinful people. You guys have a tendency to feel like you need to come down hard and you need to make sure that you're the voice of anger and justice and correction. Um, and Jesus, uh, sure, yes, he corrected people, but he was also 
very gracious with people. Um, and that's a, that's a calling to you. So how are you going to do this? He gives you the good news. Uh, he has made you good just as you are. You don't have to work to be good. You are good in terms of uh, you were created good. You know, you see, he looked at all of creation and said, it is good. That includes you. You should exist as you are. But number two, yes, you have sinful flaws and brokenness. But in Christ, um, the Lord looks and he sees Jesus. He doesn't just see all your sin. So you are good just as you are. You don't have to earn it. So what does discipleship look like? Uh, it looks like spending time in nature, being reminded that God is working everything out in his time and uh, and it's going to be okay. And then the second piece would be journaling. You got to get down into the truth of what's going on inside of your heart and not just your oughts and shoulds. You need to do the work of acknowledging, Lord, this is, this is the honest truth. And I'm going to put aside how I should feel and I'm going to acknowledge how I actually feel. So, uh, so there you go. That's, uh, that's the body triad. Yeah. Before moving on to the heart triad, I did want to ask, is there anything like on a more general sense for the body triad that would be good, like a good discipleship, you know, spiritual discipline or something like that? Yeah. You know, um, it's, uh, it is funny. Um, but you know, every type needs to exercise, but I do see in particular that when the body triad is really physically engaged, that, that mm-hmm. it opens up um, other aspects of, of their heart and their life. So, um, so yeah, um, number one, I would say uh, get physically active on a daily basis. Uh, so eights, it's going to channel your energy. Nines, it's going to wake you up. And ones, it's actually going to help you relax a little bit. And then... Um, and then the second thing to that would be um, doing the work of paying attention to your emotions and your thoughts. You guys are so body oriented that you tend to ignore your emotions and ignore your thoughts. So work on cultivating those things too. Great. So heart triad now. Yep. Okay. So heart triad. So type two, these folks are commonly known as the helper. They encounter Jesus, the true helper. Well, like the two, Jesus's needs were ignored by others who constantly wanted more from him. You know, uh, twos really feel the pain of, gosh, it just feels like I just give and give and give. I mean, if you look at the Bible, you know, Jesus gets the news about his cousin, John the Baptist uh, being killed. He goes away to spend time by himself to mourn. He gets to the shore and that's where the feeding of the 5,000 happens. Um, and then later he finally goes and has time alone, but, um, Jesus understands what it is to live in a world where everybody is once more all the time. There's just no end to the need. Um, how does he affirm you like the two Jesus served others? Um, you know, he came to, uh, to serve and to not be served, but that being said, how does he confront you? Um, he allowed other people to serve him. So yes, he is his primary thing was that he wanted to serve other people, but he did not reject when other people wanted to give to him, to serve him, to care for him. Um, and uh, and he confronts twos um, who uh, who refuse to do that. How are you going to be able to do that? Um, the, the two is given the good news. I cherish you for who you are, not what you give. The Lord loves you just as you are. You don't have to uh, to perform and you don't have to, uh, to give to others. He's not going to forget you. He's not going to abandon you. Um, so what can you do as a disciple? You can step into hospitality you're probably already doing that. So keep on doing that. Uh, so, uh, throw parties, uh, have people stay in your house, take care of other people. Awesome. Second thing though would be this centered prayer, centered prayer. And, um, and think of this primarily in the terms of uh, solitary prayer time alone. I can tell how healthy or unhealthy a two is by their capacity to be alone. A two that can't be alone is a two that is not in a healthy place. 
you've got to learn to be able to be alone and um, and solitary prayer is a pathway towards that because that is a context in which it's just you and God and he can remind you how much he loves you um, without you being so distracted by all your activity. So that's type two. Type yeah. three, uh, these folks are the achievers. Um, and in Christ, they meet the true achiever. How does he empathize with them? Well, like the three, Jesus failed to fulfill the crowd's demands to be a successful leader. What a failure of a Messiah. You know, they all had such high expectations. And this is the guy that's going to show up. It's just um, so when when we as three show up and we're trying to serve and bring our best and people just kind of go, eh, it was OK. It's all right. Uh, Jesus gets that. Jesus gets what it is to to not receive the admiration of people. How does he um, how does he affirm us? Um, well, like the three, Jesus was visionary. He's always casting this vision, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. He's speaking it into existence. It's the already and not yet. Um, and so uh, he is affirming that part of us. But Jesus confronts the three by choosing truth over admiration. We oftentimes are willing to hold back certain pieces of the picture in order to paint something more favorable. Um, Jesus was not going to bend the truth. Uh, in order to be admired. He's going to bring uh, the authentic truth um, uh, to other people. So um, how are we going to do that? Jesus gives us the good news. I love your unedited self, not your performance. Um, uh, Jesus uh, Jesus loves us, but he's not impressed by us. Um, he does not come under the, uh, the hypnosis that we try to put over on people with doing a bunch of things. Um, and so he loves us just as we are. And if we believe that, then we can live from a more authentic place. How can we follow him as disciples? Two things. Um, the uh, the first thing is study. Um, and that is going to come in the, you know, this is a very, um, we're, we're kind of goal-oriented people. So it's the ability to sit down and really do concentrated studies on things and learn and learn and learn and fill our hearts and our minds with the truth. Um and so, uh, so you're going to want to do a routine study, like a 365 uh, Bible reading plan. Um, the second thing, though, is we have to practice the discipline of confession. We got to we got to have a handful of folks in our life. I say we give them refrigerator rights. They're allowed to come into our home and dig in our fridge without asking for permission. They're able to dig into our life and ask hard questions um, and and poke around in the areas that we're embarrassed about because we trust them and we love them. You don't need to air your business to every single person, but you've got to have an inner circle of people that you regularly com uh, practice confession with. So there's the, there's the heart, heart triad. Hmm. Oh, number four. Oh yeah. Sorry. I did. I, what am I doing? I got a little lost there. Okay. Type four, <laughs> type four. Okay. So these folks are commonly known as the originalists, originalists. Um, and in Christ, they encounter the true originalist. Um, and uh, like the four, Jesus was rejected by his community and constantly misunderstood. So, I mean, his whole life is marked by rejection. Um, and everywhere he goes, he talks. People do not understand him. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's like he's the patron saint of outcasts and weirdos. And so when fours are feeling that, he gets you. Well, like the four, Jesus valued emotions, including lament. The, one of the great gifts that fours bring to the world is they they honor the fact that um, we grieve things that are lost um, um, because we're honoring them. We dishonor 
things that are lost by not grieving and fours bring that gift of lament. And Jesus recognizes that. Um, but Jesus confronts the four by calling them sheep. You know, fours think of everybody else. You guys, you guys are all a bunch of sheep. You're all just a bunch of nickelback listening, you know, Dave Matthews listening, you know, mainstream chili restaurant eating people. And Jesus comes along and he goes, Hey, guess what? You're a sheep too. And they're just as valuable. And you're just as valuable. You don't have to be different in order for me to love you. Um, and uh, how how are fours going to uh, arrive in that place? Uh, the fours given the good news, I know you and I delight in who you are. Fours often feel like no one gets them. Jesus gets gets who you are and he loves you and he delights in you. So what are you going to do? How can you uh, follow him as a disciple? First, uh, practice silence and solitude, have time alone, uh, journal, reflect, pray, um, and uh, pay attention to what's going on inside of you. But the second thing is feasting. Four's got to learn how to celebrate. Uh, so go go find some friends that are sevens and you guys learn how to celebrate and really let joy into your heart. We've got this tendency. I've got a ton of four where like in a worship service, songs of lament come up and I go, oh, this is the real stuff, you know? And then yeah. it'll go over to like, you know, something that's like more celebratory. And I'll go like, ah, oh, this, this is all just fabricated fake CCM stuff, you know? And no, the invitation is learn to celebrate. It's a discipline. Um, so there's there's type four, and now we can close up the yeah. heart triad. Yeah. Um, okay, heading on to, into the uh, the head triad, type fives. So these folks are known as the investigator, and in Jesus they encounter the true investigator, the true investigator. And uh, like the five, Jesus was bombarded by the world that wanted everything from him. So fives, when you are just feeling the pressure, everybody has a ton of questions for me. Um, Jesus, Jesus understands that, um, you know, the scriptures tell us that Jesus was asked 113 questions. That's a lot of pressure, uh, to put in fives, feel that pressure. Well, uh, like the five, Jesus was reflective. So when you guys slow down, you go, well, let's think about that. Let's, uh, let's contemplate that Jesus, Jesus affirms that, but how does he confront you? Um, because Jesus sees the world as full of abundance, not scarcity. Fives are tempted to believe there's not enough for everybody. So I need to hold back and hold on to my own and hold my energy back. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The world is full of abundance. How are you going to do that? Jesus gives you the good news. Your needs are not a problem. You have needs. You don't need to suppress them. You don't need to, to uh, you know, selfishly tend to them. You have needs. He's going to take care of them. It's not a problem. Um, so how can you follow him as a disciple? First thing is Bible study. Um, you guys are probably very gifted at that. So study the scriptures, get to know the truth, understand it. But the second thing is get out of your heads, um, and do service projects. Find a place that you can volunteer on a regular basis, uh, to step out and, um, and to go and to serve other people. And it will remind you that all your knowledge is in service of relationships. Uh, it's not just a means for your own security. Um, okay, so there's type five, type six, the loyalist. Um, so in Jesus, you encounter the true loyalist. So like the six, Jesus's life from birth to death was marked by danger, threats, and unpredictability. His life started off with the massacre of the innocents. It concluded with the crucifixion. So uh, so six is when you guys are going, I feel like everybody else just acts like the world's not a dangerous place. Jesus understands the world is a dangerous place. There are horrible threats out there, um, and we need to take those serious. Um, how does he affirm you like the six? Jesus was faithful. 
Jesus stood by his friends. He was he was faithful to the end. He was loyal to them. Um, and your desire to uh, to provide that to your community, Jesus gets that. But how does he confront you? Jesus confronts the six by not waiting for things to be safe before taking action. The temptation of the six is to go, I'll finally take action once I've got it all figured out and I've got a plan and it's all secure and safe. And Jesus says, no, step out in faith. Don't wait for us to have all the answers first. How are you going to do that? Uh, the six is given the good news. You are safe and secure in my care. Your security comes from God, not from your plans and your safety and your protocol. Um, so what does discipleship look like? Uh, first, singing. So enact your body, sing out, celebrate with God's people, um, and uh, and also journal. Um, uh, really helpful for you guys to get your thoughts out, get them untangled. They kind of turn into a web at times. Um, but then the third thing is this. Um, uh, engage in scripture memorization. Um, in, in particular, um, I'll give a very practical tip. Check out the app Verses. It literally gamifies uh, memorizing scripture, yeah. but your ability to memorize scripture um, will help you in those moments in which your brain starts going into catastrophic thinking and you're able to push back with the truth of God's word. Okay. And then finally, uh, type seven, uh, the enthusiast, uh, they encounter Jesus, the true enthusiast. Um, how does he empathize with them? Well, like the seven, Jesus lost true paradise and experienced a painful world. There was a time in life when you guys really felt joy and you felt the innocence of life and you felt bliss and then you felt like something happened and it took it all away. And that's what you're trying to get back now. Um, Jesus understands that. He understands that loss. How does he affirm you? Uh, Jesus enjoyed parties. Jesus enjoyed celebrating. You know, you don't get accused of being a glutton and a drunk uh, if you are just sort of this reclusive, you know, to yourself, non-emotive person. Uh, Jesus clearly liked to have a good time. Um, and so he affirms that. But how does he confront you? Uh, Jesus confronts the seven by enduring suffering to obtain true joy. He did not settle for a joy of avoidance. He went after a joy of substance. And that joy of substance was the joy of finding you and bringing you back to the Father. Uh, his joy was in his relationships um, and in trusting God. Hmm. How are you going to do this? You've got to believe this good news uh, when Jesus tells you, I will take care of you. Um, he's not going to give you every impulsive desire that you want, but he is going to take care of you and he's going to give you the best things. So trust him, uh, along the way. So how can you follow him as a disciple? First feast. Uh, I don't mean go gorge yourself, you know, at the buffet until you're sick. I don't mean go and be a glutton. What I mean is enjoy the experience, uh, the, 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 the sensual experience. And I mean that like, uh, the taste of things, um, uh, the, the feeling of going down the mountain and the, the wind sort of rushing through you, like go and enjoy those experiences um, and uh, uh, yeah, feast. Um, but the second thing is you, you've got to learn to practice silence and solitude. You've got to learn to still your mind because your mind is always looking for stimulation. The next thing to grab onto um, and, and uh, in order for you to mature and to really enjoy the goodness of God and the goodness of life, you've got to have some stillness. Um, so, so begin to practice uh, daily going for a walk by yourself, no music, no outside stimulation, turn your phone off um, or go into a closet in your room or whatever it is you need to do, but have some time alone. So there it is. There's all type nine. There it is. That's great. 
uh, one thing or one last thing I wanted to hit with you real quick is that we had mentioned for the body type that exercise can sometimes be a general spiritual yeah. di- or discipline that can help people. Is there one for yeah. the head and the heart that might be helpful? Yeah, you know it's funny um, um, because when I think of when I think of the you know so the head folks you know they are they're so thinking oriented that they're emotion repressed and then sort of body repressed. Um, and, um, uh, generally speaking, you know, what I find is, uh, the, for those folks, um, get into community and have good conversations. That'll kind of activate some of your emotions. So, um, do that. And then again, get physically active. So no. communal, communal stuff, active stuff. Um, and then, um, for, uh, for the heart triad, uh, these folks, um, begin to practice, um, begin to practice, uh, being active but then also begin to practice um, time alone and thoughtful sort of reflection. So reading, journaling, um, and uh, and solitude. So uh, so if you think of it, you know, if you think of it through the triadic centers, you know, to, to take care of your body, get active, to take care of your emotions, you want to work on your relationships and your um, sort of your social uh, connections and then to work on um, your your stuff with your mind you want to become reflective and you want to rehearse God's truth that's great here's another, well, here, let say, me, here I'll, yeah, I'll say one yeah, more here ahead. I'll give you one more thing here's here's yeah. another let me give let me give like big theological words for it too um yeah. if we think about what it means to follow Jesus with our whole body there's sort of a, a tension that exists in between conservative and progressive circles so conservatives tend to say orthodoxy is what matters right thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. progressives tend to say, um, no, it's about right action. So orthopraxy. Um, and, uh, and sadly the third piece almost always gets left off, which is orthopathy, which is the mm-hmm. right affections, the right loves. And so, um, so what does it mean to follow Jesus, um, with our, with our emotions, with our thoughts and with our bodies, it is to pursue orthopathy. We want to love people and the world the way that he does. Uh, uh, with our affections, we want to pursue orthodoxy, uh, knowing the truth, rehearsing the truth, believing the truth, trusting the truth, and then finally, orthopraxy. We want to live out the truth. We want to take action with our faith. Um, and so, those those three areas are our pathway to discipleship. Awesome. Well, Jesse, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book. You know how we relate and keep up with you. What's the best place for people to go to get the book and keep up with you? Yeah, so uh, so you can pick up the book basically anywhere uh, that's on planet Earth that sells books for the most part. You you can pick up a copy. So uh, if you want to do it online, um, you can head over to howwerelatebook.com. Uh, you can download the first two chapters for free. Uh, it is available as um, a print, digital, or audiobook versions. Um, you can also learn more about uh, the, the other work that I do by heading over to my ministry's website, lovethyneighborhood.org. And we do urban missions programs. Uh, we do workshops on the Enneagram. And then we also have two podcasts. One is called Love Thy Neighborhood, which is like uh, if you baptized NPR, that's our show. And then yeah. the other one is called the Enneacast, which is uh, all about the Enneagram, which is like a talk show, interview, game show com- combination. Awesome. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. And just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Caleb. And uh, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for asking such great questions.
you know, Jesse has this quote in there from Richard Rohr, which I want to read and expound on a little bit. Richard says, how we relate to God always reveals how we will relate to people. And how we relate to people is almost an invaluable indicator of how we relate to God and let God relate to us. The whole Bible is a school in relationship. And you know, the Enneagram is one of those tools that helps us become better at relationship. Both in understanding ourselves, understanding what our defense mechanisms are, and where we go to when we're stressed, and what we tend to sacrifice at any cost, just as what Jesse was going through, or, you know, all the list of things that he was going through, and how we can end up trading what we value most for something that will be gone or is fleeting or that we can't fully hold on to. And it helps us understand that about the people that we love and care about the most, too, is that we understand their defense mechanisms. We understand what they're trying, what their core desire is, and maybe some of the ways that they try to achieve those things. And it helps us learn how we can love people better. And also, it's a good reminder of us is that, yes, we, and as, as myself being a follower of Jesus, that yes, it can help us love people better, but we are never meant to satisfy that core desire entirely. We're just meant to be a supplement, at, at best, a supplement to the to what Jesus provides us, whether that be him being trustworthy, whether that be authenticity, or whether that be um, just, just a myriad of different things. He wants to be the provider for us. And I love what Jesse said about him having only... Like, here's how we know that he's trustworthy, because he has the authority, he can do that. And he has empathy for us, because he knows what it's been like, and he knows what we're going through. So that's kind of my big takeaway from this episode. This is a great book, I love it, and it has a lot of unique ways that they talk about the Enneagram in here. So highly recommend it. Again, that's How We Relate book. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my newsletter where I'm telling you all the different things that I am currently learning from and some of the things I'm learning about as well. And yeah, that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Jesse for being on the podcast today and for such a great conversation. Thank you for listening uh, all the way to the end of the episode. I jumped ahead on there. That's usually the part I put at the end. Thanks to Sam Massey for creating the music. And that's all that I got for today. So thanks so much for listening. Until next time, my name is Caleb Mason. Keep learning and keep growing.